and be seated. Church, it's good to be with you today as we kick off a new series. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews today. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to uh, give you an update on one other thing. I know uh, a lot of us have been praying, you know, almost constantly for the situation in Ukraine. And uh, we've been wondering, is there anything we can do? Some of you asked me, is there anything we can do? Uh, I do want to just give you a little update about something we are going to do. Um, we're going to keep praying, um, and I know probably like me, it's hard to watch, right? Um, it's a reminder of just how evil one human can be to another. Um, and, you know, I got sin in my heart too. It manifests itself in different ways. Um, but uh, this is a hard reminder of just how cruel we can be. Uh, but that's also when there are opportunities for the church to be the church. Um, so I did uh, stumble across one of those this week, uh, a guy that I've been partnered with in ministry for about 25 years now. Uh, I know him really well. He need, leads a church planting network in Romania. Uh, they planted a whole bunch of churches over there. They're evangelical gospel churches. They're from the same tribe we are. Uh, they also run a couple orphanages over there in Romania. Uh, he was, I was in touch with him this week. He was kind of talking about what they've got going on um, and what they're doing as a church. Uh, they're just across the border from Ukraine, and so they have a lot of partnership with Ukrainian churches. They do retreats with them. They do camps with them, so they know the churches over there. Um, he said a normal day for their churches right now is they get up every morning, they drive to the store, they fill their cars and trucks up with food and medicine, and they drive to the Ukrainian border where they meet Ukrainian Christians, and they load it from their trucks into their trucks, and they take it back. And he said usually those Ukrainian Christians have with them some of their children that they give to the Romanian church and say, would you take care of my child while I go back uh, to defend my home? And he says, that's just what they're doing every day, uh, kind of spending every dime they've got on emptying their stores and driving to Ukraine where there aren't functional stores right now. He also mentioned this Thursday, he sent me an email um, about one city that is sending them 100 orphans from one town in Ukraine. Um, uh, so he emailed yesterday to say that they were getting close to the border. He thought they would meet them today at the Ukrainian border uh, to rescue these 100 Ukrainian orphans. Um, they run an orphanage there in Romania, so they'll, be able to, they'll house them for a while there while they actually find places for them deeper in Europe because uh, they fear, you know, what if they're next? And so they don't want to house them there because they need to keep moving. He said every day, families, women and children mainly, just walk through their village, hungry. Uh, they feed them, and they send them on deeper into Europe uh, because they need to be ready for the next group that arrives. Um, so that's what the church is doing in Romania and how they're partnering with the church in Ukraine. And there's a role we can do. These are not wealthy churches. These are not wealthy people. Um, and we can help keep this engine of love and mercy in Jesus' name going. Um, in the weeks to come, we'll get more organized. We have other partners that are also in Poland and some in Ukraine, partners we know and trust. I know it's weird. You're watching a YouTube video and an ad pops up, give to Ukraine, and you don't know, can I trust these people or whatever? Well, these are people we know. We know them personally. We don't just know of them. We know them. I've eaten in their home. They've been in mine. I've ministered across from them for 20-some years. We have elders in our church who've known them for 30. Um, these are good people. They're on the ground. They know people there. Um, 
they don't have an overhead. It's all going to go straight to the Romanian church for the Romanian church to buy these things and take it to the Ukrainian church and then to rescue these children and care for these children while they find permanent homes for them. So what we're doing this week, it's not a perfect plan, but it's the best thing we can come up with on short notice, is for this week, we're just going to give away half our offering to them. So everything that's given today and the way our weeks work, it also includes everything that's given online or if a check arrives between now and Friday. So we're just going to start there. Half of this week's offering is going to go to this group. I'm not saying their name from stage because we're streaming, and I don't know that he wants me to say names on stage. Not that I think anybody's watching our stream, but whatever, you know, better safe than sorry. If you've got questions about it, you can come ask me. We do think once we figure out what we can put on our website, we will put what we can on our website. So if you want to directly um, partner with some people we trust who are doing good work on the ground in Jesus' name, uh, and the money won't get wasted on advertising or whatever, uh, we'll have that available just as soon as we can to you. So that's what's happening this week. Um, so this week's offering, basically, which means everything given today through Friday. Yeah, praise God. Well, um, and, and pray for the Romanian and Ukrainian church and the Polish church. I, I've heard similar stories from the Polish church. Um, uh, that's, you know, uh, you know, the governments will help. They'll have a role to play eventually, too. But right now, it's mainly the church that's rescuing these people and feeding them as they walk through looking for some place to call home. Um, so we're going to pray for them in this work right now, and may God bless this gift, and we'll figure out more to do as God opens the door for us. God, we pray, um, it's hard to know where to start, um, we pray first for the hearts of evil men, for there is sin in our, we recognize what sin looks like in a heart, God, and we see it played out on this terrible scale, and so we do pray for um, the work of the Holy Spirit that brings conviction and repentance in the hearts of those who are perpetuating this evil. Many of them would actually claim to know Jesus. Um, and they are far from him right now. And so we just pray that your spirit would convict them, that they would walk away from this terrible destruction. Um, and so we pray that that would happen. We pray for your church, God. Um, we particularly have heard these stories from our brothers and sisters in Romania. But it's all over. You're in your church, we just pray that they would uh, rise to the challenge, that the Christians like us who sit in comfort and safety would support them um, and enable them. And as, we, as you open more, just make it clear, we can't step through every door, God, and it's hard to know what to do, but if, would you make the doors clear that we can step through? And, and may this small gift do something. We pray for those hundred children that hopefully will cross um, the border into Romania today and be met by your church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray in the name of Jesus. Um, because he is, of course, the only one who can do anything about this. He's the only one who promises to actually repair the damage done. Wars come to an end, but that doesn't bring the end of the destruction they cause. But Jesus says, I'll wipe away every tear. I'll restore what the locusts have taken. Be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's a fitting segue into the book of Hebrews. Because the argument of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Hold on to Jesus. 
For the next five weeks, we're going to be just reading pretty much straight through it. Today, we're just going to read the first two chapters plus one verse of chapter three. We're just going to read straight through it and talk about it. That's what we're going to do uh, for the next uh, five weeks as we just uh, look to Jesus through the lens of the book of Hebrews. I want to set up the book just a little bit for you so you'll know what we're getting into. Uh, Hebrews is an interesting book. Uh, We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Unlike a lot of the New Testament where we know either if the book itself tells us who wrote it or the the documents of church history make it clear that we can kind of know who wrote it. That isn't true. Uh, Neither in the book itself nor in any of the early church writings is it made clear who wrote the book of Hebrews. So we just don't know. We don't know exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly to whom it was written. Like, what was the first church that got a hold of it? Like, for instance, the book of Corinthians was actually the book written to the Corinthians. We know who that was written to. We don't know that about the book of Hebrews. But there are some things we can know generally that will help us as we approach the book of Hebrews. We know that the person who wrote it and the people who received it knew the Old Testament really, really well. And we don't. So that'll take some extra work sometimes to understand what they're talking about because he references things that we maybe don't know quite as well. We know that it was written late enough that it was written to a well-established church. So it couldn't have been written in like the 50s. But we also know that it was written early enough that a guy like Clement would quote it as scripture. Clement was a preacher in the 80s, not the the 1980s, but the actual 80s, like the 80s, 80s. That was Clement. He was a preacher in Rome in the 80s, and he quotes Hebrews all the time, and he loved the book of Hebrews. And so it has to, it was, it was received as scripture by the 80s. So it has to be reasonably early, but not super early. Another interesting little tidbit that helps us narrow it down is uh, the author of Hebrews is really interested in how Jesus compares to things from Judaism, but he never mentions the destruction of the temple, which happened in the 70s. And it's hard to imagine he would have left that out in his letter if it had already happened. So most people think that we've actually narrowed it down pretty closely, had to have been written sometime in the 60s. The 50s is too early. 70s is too late. That leaves the 60s. What else do we know about the book of Hebrews? Oh, it's a sermon. That's an interesting thing. It's a single sermon. Consequently, it has the most narrow theme of any book in the New Testament. It basically, the whole book is about one thing. Jesus is better than everything, so hold on to Jesus and don't fall away. Basically, the whole book from top to bottom is making that simple argument. Jesus is better than everything, so hold on to Jesus. Now, people who read Hebrews today uh, do often find it complicated. A part of that is because of the Old Testament stuff. Part of that is because the, the kind of Greek rhetoric it uses is different than how we think and write. But I have a little trick that helps me make sense of Hebrews, and I've been teaching this to people for about 20 years, and and most people I share it with say it really helps. So if you're trying to read the book of Hebrews on your own, here's the one little trick I'd give you. Ready? The content of Hebrews can be fit into two categories. One, complicated theological stuff. Two, blunt, powerful, clear commands. And almost always, the blunt, powerful, clear commands will include the word, therefore, or one of its many synonyms. So if you find a sentence with that word in it, 
pay attention. So what's going to happen, so if you're just reading, and we're going to discover this on our own today. It's going to happen today. I'll demonstrate what I mean, but I'll just help you out. If you're just reading along in Hebrews, and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. I have completely lost the plot of this book. Relax. Just keep reading till you find the word therefore. I bet you'll understand that sentence just fine. And since we want to understand God's word and obey God's word, with Hebrews, the second half comes easy. The command of Hebrews is always clear, even if you're a little confused by the theological conversation. So that's what we're going to discover. Uh, complicated theological stuff followed by blunt, powerful, clear commands. And today we're just going to jump in. We're going to make it all the way to the first verse of chapter 3 today. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you've got a phone or a tablet with you, you just Google Hebrews 1, and I bet you'll get there. The words will also be up on the screen, but you'll kind of want to be able to see the flow of the argument, and we can only show you sort of a verse or two at a time at the screen. So if you've got a way to look at the text yourself, that'll really help you follow along, because the text is actually our outline today. We're just going to work our way through the text. All right, let's jump in. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the first major theological claim of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the angels and the prophets. Now you may wonder why this pair, prophets and angels, to our ears that seems a curious pair, doesn't it? Prophets, these men and women who spoke on behalf of God, angels, these spiritual beings, you know, that fly around and stuff. The reason that feels weird to us is we actually have forgotten what the word angels means. When we see the word angel in English, we usually think of the spiritual being. But the word being translated there, angelos, is simply the plain old Greek word for messenger. It's just the word that means messenger. It gets applied to these spiritual beings because they are the messengers of God. But the word angel by itself just means messenger. And here in this text, what we'll discover is he's using it to apply both to the prophets and to spiritual messengers, what we would think of as the angels. He just means the messengers broadly. So that's why those two are a pair. The prophets and the angels are those who speak for God. And he's saying Jesus is the true and better messenger. If you want a good messenger for God, he says, look to Jesus. And already he's shown us some of the reasons why. He's the heir of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's being. One time one of the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, would you show us God? And Jesus was like, show you God? I'm right here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's what he's talking about, the exact 
representation of God's being. And Hebrews says, listen, God has spoken lots of ways. Sure, he's spoken through prophets. He's spoken through spiritual messengers. But now we get to hear from Jesus. Now, why would this be a point worth making? Jesus is the true and better messenger. Well, the ancient church of the first century was really excited about spiritual things. Cultural Judaism and then cultural Christianity, they were just fascinated by the divine, the supernatural, and the theological. And so people were always popping up and they would write a book and say, oh, I heard from an angel. I'm a prophet. I had a vision of the Lord. I have some special insight into the divine. And the church would get super excited about that and raise this teacher up and make them an authority. That sort of sounds like us, doesn't it? We're a culture that's fascinated with the spiritual and the divine and the theological. There's a book on the bestseller every year that somebody's saying, I met an angel or I had a vision or I have some new special insight to the divine. And they go on all the talk shows and everybody reads them and we get all excited. Even Christian books and authors sometimes claim that they've got some special access to the truth, some special word of insight, some special knowledge. And we get all excited about these messengers, and we ignore the messenger we've got. I was talking once with somebody who, they were into all this, they read all this nonsense, people saying they'd met an angel or they'd had a vision or had some special prophetic word for the church, and they were into all this. And I asked them one time, why do you pay attention to all this? And they said, I just want to know that God loves me. And so I tried to be as tender as I could, but I just said to them, what more proof do you need than the cross. The Son of God died for your sins. Why are you chasing all this nonsense and stuff that always turns out to be sham and lies? And yet we keep falling for these new messengers. I know when Jesus is going to return, you know. You know if this war lasts five more minutes, somebody's going to say, this is it, it's the end times, Jesus is going to be back in three weeks. Somebody's going to do that. And the book of Hebrews says, there is no better messenger than Jesus. And by the way, on that one point, Jesus says, you don't know. He begins his argument for the supremacy of Jesus as the true and better messenger in, in earnest in verse 5. For to which of the other angels, the messengers, remember it always means both angels and messengers. To which of the other messengers did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or I will be his father, he will be my son. Again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. And when he talks about angels, he says, let he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Angels are servants. But the son, he says, verse 8, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the joy of oil. He also says in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They'll perish, but you will remain they will wear out like a garment, and you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. 
To what angel, what messenger did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer to that question is to none except Jesus. Are not all the angels just serving spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They're sent to serve us. We're the ones who will inherit salvation. His first point for why Jesus is the true and better messenger is that Jesus reigns and all the prophets and all the angels serve. And who is a better messenger for the king than the king? Right? I mean, if you're waiting on a message from the king, I mean, you would be excited if a messenger showed up. I have a message from the king. I have a word from the Lord. I mean, that would be exciting. But what if the king showed up to deliver it in person? You would not pay attention to the messenger anymore. And here comes our first therefore. Remember, complicated theological sections, blunt, clear commands. Here it is, our first one, 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What have we heard? We've heard the message of Jesus. He's going to talk about that message of salvation here in the next couple verses. That's what we've heard. But listen to that other phrase, so we do not drift away. Here's the thing that's true. What you listen to what you pay attention to, as it says there in verse 1, chapter 2, what you listen to, what you pay attention to, has a gravity on your heart. And you will be drawn to it. I know some people who don't think that's true. They think they can watch whatever entertainment they watch, and it will not callous their soul. They can pay attention to whatever they want to pay attention to, and it just has no gravitational force. They'll just stay just as solid for Jesus as they ever were, and they can pay attention to whatever and listen to whatever and participate in all these conversations and, 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 and they surround themselves with friends who are going in a different direction. And they say, there's no gravity there. There's no pull there. And to that, God's word just says, you're wrong, like super wrong. Because in fact, what we pay attention to does have a gravity on our hearts. It pulls us to it. Are you taking that truth seriously? Remember, complicated theological sections? Blunt, clear commands. Pay the most careful attention to what you've heard, which is the message of salvation so that we do not drift away. What are you paying, atten- what are you paying the most careful attention to right now? Is it uh, politics? Is it news about the war? I was wrestling with this text all week, and um, in the middle of that I discovered that I'd developed a little ritual. I'd wake up in the morning and check the CNN news feed for what had happened in Ukraine. Then over breakfast, I'd check the Fox News news feed to see if they knew anything CNN didn't. Then over lunch, I'd check the NBC News news feed to see if they knew anything Fox and CNN didn't. Then in the afternoon, I'd check the BBC News just for a British perspective. And then after work, I'd start the whole thing over again back with CNN, see anything that happened in the 12 hours since. I'll just be clear, that is not a super healthy way to live. I need to be well-informed, yes, but not eight times a day. 
What am I paying attention to? That's what I'm asking. Are you paying attention only to social media? Are you, are you paying attention to Christian bloggers? I had a friend uh, months ago. We were on the, on the phone. I knew him years ago. Our lives overlapped in ministry, and we'd stayed in touch. And he'd gotten mean. He didn't used to be mean. And so we were talking, and I was just like, what's going on? And pretty soon I discovered he'd started reading a, a group of bloggers. And they were Christian bloggers. They were just mean Christian bloggers. They didn't talk about Jesus. They talked about how wrong every other Christian was but the them. And he'd gotten mean. That's what this verse says. Pay attention to what you heard or else you will drift away. What you pay attention to has a gravity on your heart. And I, I totally get the impulse to say, no, I can stand firm for Jesus and pay attention to all this nonsense. Give my attention to all this other stuff and I'll just stand firm. I get the, the, the impulse to say that. It's just that God's word says you're wrong. That's all. God's word says, pay attention to Jesus because he has the supreme authority and we'll go on because his message is the message of salvation. Let's read on. This is his next argument. First, Jesus has the authority. Second, he has the message of salvation. Chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Listen, the angels and the prophets had an important message. And people who ignored their message paid the price. How much more, he wonders, for those of us who ignore the message of salvation. This salvation, which was first announced, see, that's a messenger, by the Lord, was confirmed to us by the eyewitnesses. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Why must we pay attention to Jesus? He reigns supreme, and his message is the message of salvation. He goes on. It was not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So he didn't put angels in charge of the world to come. He's going to put us in charge. For there is a place, that place would be Psalm 8, where someone has testified. What is immortal that you are mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him? You have made a person a little lower than the angels, and, but you crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. We were created lower than the angels, but we will be crowned in glory above even the angels. He goes on, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him, but at present we do not see everything subject to him. Uh, there's a tiny uh, interpretive difficulty here in verse 8. See, I told you, complicated theological sections. Um, this last sentence of verse 8, the ones on the screen right now, it could still have the same referent as Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is about people, all humanity. Uh, and it says, we were created lower than the angels, but we will one day by God's grace be glorified. And this verse could still be talking about that. And the hymn of this verse could be uh, the generic human hymn, uh, which is a common way they use that word in Greek. Or he could here have started talking about Jesus, which he's about to in verse 9. I mention this to you uh, because if you were to buy a bunch of commentaries on Hebrews, you, would, you could make a stack, and half of them would say this sentence is about Jesus, and half of them would say this sentence is about people. Uh, the reason is, is because the grammar is a little obscure. Um, theologically, both statements are true. 
It both is true that God has put everything under Jesus. Nothing is left that is not under Jesus. But we can't visibly see the reign of Christ yet. That's theologically true. It also is true that God will one day allow us to reign with Christ, put everything under us as co-heirs with Christ, and that has not yet happened yet. Theologically, it's true. Grammatically, it's true. Um, And I confess that I spent way too many hours on this question in the last week, uh, to the point that I even called my dad. He's a Greek professor, and I was like, okay, dad, does the Greek reveal any clue about this? And he said, nope, it's the gr- grammar is just as ambiguous in Greek as it is in English. There's no help there. So that was annoying to me. Uh, not that it matters, uh, but I did, after lots and lots of work on the text and comparing different ar- arguments from different commentaries, I did come away convinced uh, that he is still in that sentence talking about people. He's still kind of anchored into Psalm 8 saying, the glorification of people has not yet happened. But, honestly, it doesn't change the argument. So they're both sentences are theologically true, both interpretations are, they're both gra- grammatically consistent. And his point is to set us up for verse 9. So he says, that's what hasn't happened yet. We haven't been glorified, and we don't see, we don't witness the glorification of Christ. Whichever one he means, both are true. But then he's going to tell us what has happened. Verse 9, we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned in glory and honor because he has suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He says Jesus has been humbled and now glorified so that we who were already humbled might someday be glorified. He goes on, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are holy are of the same family. The incarnation of Christ matters because in order to save us, Christ had to be one of us so that his death would be our death and his life would be our life. He goes on, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And he didn't do this for the angels. That's what he says. For surely it was not the angels that he's trying to help, but Abraham descendants, people. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Here, the author of Hebrews hints at some of the themes that he will explore more fully later in the book, about Christ's atonement, about Christ as the faithful high priest, But for now, notice his main point. Why would we listen to Jesus? Number one, chapter one, he reigns. And number two, he became one of us so that he might save us. 
humbled, now glorified, so that we who are already humbled might be glorified. And then, having reminded us that Christ is sovereign over all, and every other messenger is just a servant, having reminded us that Christ is the one who suffered humiliation and death for our salvation, he does what I promised he would do. Remember, complicated theological sections? In fact, I might have just lost you. I don't know. Chapter 2 is a little weird. Followed by blunt, powerful, clear commands. Usually marked by the word therefore. Our next therefore is in chapter 3, verse 1. Here it comes. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Some of our translations weaken the impact of this text a little bit um, because they use some English words that carry the right meaning, but not exactly the right emotion. This command to fix your thoughts on Jesus is a stark command. It means to focus on Jesus. You know, there are two ways you can say pay attention when you're teaching a young person how to drive, right? You can say it real calmly. You can say, now remember when you come to this intersection, you're going to pay attention to all the roads to make sure you don't get hit. And you can also say it like this, pay attention! You're about to get hit! This is that kind of pay attention. This is that. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, pay attention to Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. You see, this was a challenge for the ancient church. Because they were easily distracted by false messengers who claimed some new truth, by the toil of life and the weariness of days, by the suffering of human flesh and the weakness of human relationships. That sort of sounds like us, right? Easily distracted by false teachers who claim special knowledge, by the suffering of the flesh and the weariness of the days by the toil of life and the difficulty of our relationships, easily distracted. You know how Hebrews works by now, right? Complicated theological sections, followed by blunt, clear commands. Pay attention to Jesus, lest you drift away, lest you drift away. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, because that is your heavenly calling, and he is your apostle, which means sent one. And he is your high priest, which means the one who repairs your relationship with God. So let's be blunt and clear, okay? Got two exercises you might want to do. You might need to do an ear audit. Just an analysis. What are you paying attention to these days? I mean, if you want to tell somebody else that you can pay attention to junk and not be pulled to it, great. Tell that to somebody else. Just don't tell it to me because I just read in the Bible that it's not true. So don't bother telling me. What are you paying attention to? And where is it pulling you? I, I, I had written the words ear audit on my Word document like five days ago. And as I wrote the words, I was like, oh, yeah, you mean like how you check the news feed to see that nothing's changed every hour? Maybe you need to pay attention to what you're listening to. Okay, so I'm doing an ear audit too, but you do it with me. What are you listening to day by day? 
What have you been listening to for the past couple years? Is it stuff that draws you? Have you, are you, I mean, are you listening to the true and better messenger or all these weaker messengers, lesser messengers? My next challenge is, is the one in chapter 3, verse 1. Focus your thoughts on Jesus. When you are overwhelmed by the trials of life, by the worries of the day, by the weakness of the flesh, by the evil of the world, and how can we not be some of these days? Just grab hold of your mind and turn it to Jesus. Because he is there. He came to this world, tempted in every way just as we, suffered in every way just as we, living as one of us, our, bro- our brother, so that we can be his brother and sister. Our brother in the humiliation of life, so that we can be his brother and sister in the glorification that is to come. Just turn your thoughts to Jesus. All right, well, some of us got lost halfway through this sermon. I get it. That's what happens to me every time I read Hebrews. I can't make it through the whole chapter without getting confused, which is why I got to anchor on the blunt commands because I can't understand that complex theological stuff. So why don't we give Hebrews the last word? And let's just reread the first three verses we read together and the last one. And I think you'll know exactly what God's word is telling you to do. Let's just read those together, and then we'll pray. In the past, God spoke to your ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. It's the son who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle, the one God sent to us. That's what the word means. And our high priest, the one who restores our relationship with God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus. He is the messenger we need and the only voice I want to hear. And yet, we have some repentance to do. For we have turned our ears to lesser messengers, to false messengers, to corrupting messengers. And there is a gravity in them that draws us to them. So turn our thoughts back to Jesus. For those of us who need to repent, let there just be a time of repentance. And let's just say to you in our spirit, we will fix our thoughts on you. We will pay attention to Jesus. And as we do that, we're just trusting God that you will be faithful to empower us with your spirit so that we might be faithful to obey your word. This is our prayer and our plea. Turn our thoughts to the true and better messenger who is Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
church in just a minute. I'm going to dismiss us with a blessing. Um, as we go, uh, if you came prepared to give an offering or you want to help with this work uh, in the Romanian church, helping them help the Ukrainians, um, you can give. You can give all week. You can give online. If you want to participate in that, please do. Uh, mostly, though, do the audit, folks. What are you paying attention to? Complicated theology, I know. Feel free to tell somebody. I didn't understand a word of that sermon, but I knew what I was supposed to do. That's how Hebrews works. Who are you listening to? Listen to Jesus. Go in peace. Be blessed. Have a great week. Thanks for worshiping with us today.